This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Now and Not Yet. Pressing in when you're waiting, wanting, and restless for more. Written and narrated by best-selling author Ruth Cho Simons and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Welcome to the Grace Enough Podcast. I'm your host, Amber Cullum. This is episode three of a five-part series where I sit down with guests to discuss topics like mishandling power in the church, spiritual abuse, image management, and Christian celebrity culture. While each episode can be listened to independently, listening to all five episodes will provide a broader understanding of how these wounds occur in what should be safe spaces. Today, I sit down with journalist, author, podcaster, and acquisitions editor at Brazos Press, Caitlin Beatty. Caitlin's newest book, Celebrities for Jesus, How Personas, Platforms, and Profits Are Hurting the Church, is what we discuss. What I appreciate about Caitlin's book and our conversation is her willingness to boldly address issues head-on, yet her quickness to say fame itself is not a sin, neither is profit. We dive into that a bit today as we discuss the difference between fame and celebrity, the complicity of the Christian publishing industry in the creation of celebrities, and the impact ordinary faithfulness has on our walks with Jesus. After enjoying this episode, will you do me a favor? Hit the share button on the app where you're currently listening and either send it to a friend or share it on social media. Tag Grace Enough Podcast so I can say thank you. It means a lot to me. As a podcaster, sharing is the best compliment you can give me for the show. Good afternoon, Caitlin, and welcome to the Grace Enough Podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Amber. Oh, I'm delighted to have this conversation because you have recently written something that I'm super passionate about as well, and that is Celebrities for Jesus. But before we dive into that, I like to lay a foundation for people in how my guests came to know Christ. Uh, Share a little bit of your faith journey with us and just kind of how your relationship with Christ started. I grew up in Ohio, and I would say all through my childhood, my family went to Methodist churches, I would say, and I think my parents would agree with this. It was a nominal faith in that, mm-hmm. you know, we went to church every Sunday, but we never talked about <laughs> Jesus or the Bible at home. It was, I think my parents thought this is good for moral, a moral foundation, moral character, which is fine in and of itself. But then we started going to a more contemporary seeker sensitive church when I was 13. And that came at a really important time in my life. I got really involved in youth group and on a youth outing, we, you know, went to kind of a traditional revival. There was a CCM band playing, and then there was a simple gospel presentation after the concert. And I responded, I stood up Mm. and decided I wanted to commit my life to Christ and you felt uh, a warmth in my heart and spirit that was new and just continued to get to know more about the Bible, the person of Christ through that church kind of developed the more intellectual side Mm -hmm. of faith, how to love God with your mind in college. I went to a Christian college and that really set me on a path of wanting to work in some kind of professional Christian environment, you know, that I wanted my faith to bear on all aspects of my life, including my work. And so pretty much right out of college, ended up at Christianity Today magazine and was there for almost a decade. And that's actually connected to some of the reasons I decided to write this book, which I'm sure we'll get to. But yeah, I I can look back on that conversion experience and kind of analyze it and, you know, mm-hmm. probably wouldn't listen to that CCM band <laughs> anymore. But I think of it as authentic and, you know, God mm-hmm. uses culturally specific ways and means of, of reaching people and drawing people to himself. And yes, he does. I, I wrote in my journal that night, I came to Jesus tonight. I accepted Jesus. And 
I'm just really excited about that. So I, mm. I think of it as that, that was kind of the, the turning point for me. Yeah. I mean, I love that you said it because I know from having read other things that you've written, I grew up in a Methodist church as well, would say very similar to what you just talked about. Mm. But now, I mean, you're, you're back in a liturgical type church. Am I correct mm-hmm. in saying mm-hmm. that? And I mean, I've said to my husband, like, I think that I could just be back in a liturgical church and be completely happy. And then there's something about our kids that kind of keep us Mm. not doing that. And so mm-hmm. it's an interesting thing, but is that correct? You're back in a liturgical type church. Yeah, I am. And I, I really, through my adulthood, I've been in a liturgical church setting. Mm-hmm. The thing that really speaks to me about it, not only there's a sense of historical rootedness, I didn't really have that in the Methodist church where I came to faith, but also recognizing that the, you know, the prayers of the people, the scriptural readings, the confession, like there's something sturdy about returning to those words week in and week out. And whether I am feeling really connected to God or whether I'm feeling disconnected, I can kind of lean on those Mm -hmm. prayers and words to sustain me. And I don't have to come, I don't have to reinvent the wheel every week. (laughs) No, I mean, I love that because I even think about, you know, sometimes people will say, Oh, I mean, aren't you just training your brain to think one thing? And I'm like, but isn't that what we do with everything? Like, that's why Mm. we learn math facts. That's why we learn grammar. Mm -hmm. Like it's why we, so there is a rootedness in that, that I agree with, but again, Mm -hmm. we're not really here to just talk about that. And so as a writer, as a journalist, as like you said, someone who came out, worked for Christianity today for 10 years, First female editor, am I? First female managing editor, yeah. Managing editor, go (laughs) girl. That's a really big deal. I mean, it is. Mm -hmm. And then now you're an acquisitions editor for, you know, I I don't Mm -hmm. feel like I ever say, is it Brazos? Sure. Correct. Yeah. I, feel like I, we, I feel like I never say it correct. We hear Brazos, Brazos, okay. even some of our team members say it differently. So that's okay. Fine. Good. That makes yes. me feel better because I see it. I see it on paper a lot more than I speak it out loud. Right. Right. And so, um, and you have throughout your career, you have spent a lot of time really observing the trends of the American church. And that is what you are writing a lot about in Celebrities for Jesus. And so share about some of those observations in recent years and really what led you to decide to write this book. Yeah, I really started thinking about the role of celebrity in the American church while working at Christianity Today. CT is a news publication. There's daily news as well as a monthly magazine. And of course, you know, people would come to us with tips or kind of inside information about all sorts of things. And it was our responsibility to dig into those either allegations or tips and see if they were credible. And sometimes, you know, we have to report on things and oftentimes you have to report on disappointing or discouraging stories about leaders who would be household names in the American church who have a massive following and platform. And after you hear enough tips, I started to think, is there something about the role of celebrity itself that is connected to either abuses of power or lacking accountability? Because the lacking in accountability was often a component of the stories as well. Like no one could really stand up to the person, right? They were too big to fail or too popular to fail, or we don't want to address this because the growth or success of our ministry is tied up in this person's success. So that was kind of the Genesis, just working at the magazine and starting to hear some discouraging stories, but then now being in book publishing for coming up on four years. This is, this is an industry-wide trend. It's certainly not Christian book publishing, but just the emphasis on platform Mm -hmm. to determine what kind of books to publish and who to work with. Obviously, you know, businesses care about a bottom line. All companies do. You want your books to sell and create profit, but as Christian businesses and as stewards of people's words, if we're thinking of these books as ways that the church is being discipled, I think we should maybe have other considerations Mm -hmm. 
on the table besides how many social media followers does this person have? I think that's one component of a broader picture, but the pressure to create profit and just recognizing that celebrity sells, sometimes those other more missional considerations are drowned Mm -hmm. out. So really wanting there to be just greater integrity in Christian book publishing between like what we say we want to do and the kind of books we want to create and then the books that we end up publishing. I want to dig into that just a little bit because I was just having a conversation yesterday with my friend, Amy, whose husband worked at Ramsey solutions. And, and we know that abuse of power is somewhat wrapped up in that as well. Mm -hmm. And we were just talking about, you know, some of the personas that work under him and how those people mm-hmm. have been published, but like they're, they have ghost writers. So they're not even <laughs> writing, which ghost writing yes. has been a thing for decades mm-hmm. upon decades. So that's not a new thing. Right. But there is a problem with that. I mean, because we're Christians or is there not like what, where do you yeah. see that tension rest? <laughs> yes. It's such a fascinating thing to me. I'm glad you brought up ghostwriting. And I do, you know, in the chapter on book publishing, I devote a little bit of time to it. So I think theoretically, I don't have a problem with the idea that someone has an important message or teaching and they're not a writer and they just can't write, you know, like that is not in their wheelhouse. That's not part of their gifting. And they hire someone who is a writer, a professional writer to capture their message and teaching. I think I'm okay with that. Where I have come down is that I think it is essential for the ghostwriter, the person who actually wrote the book (laughs) to be given credit in a public way Mm -hmm. and also to be compensated at a rate commensurate Mm -hmm. with the value that they brought to the book. So it is not uncommon. And I, I don't even have specific people in mind, but when you think about kind of the top best-selling Christian books from very famous pastors, ministry leaders, if you scratch below the surface, it's not uncommon to realize that they didn't use a ghostwriter, but you have to be looking for that to find it out because of course the cover just has their name often has their face the, you know, a picture of them. And I just wonder if the reading public ought to be aware of that and how would being aware of a ghostwriter's work change our valuation of the book? You know, mm. it's also just the idea of getting, giving credit where credit is due. Yeah, right. Right. <laughs> you know, and like, why wouldn't, if you're a mega pastor, church leader, ministry leader, either you can't write or you just don't have time, which I can accept just why not give credit? Like why, what is the harm in simply saying I received a lot of help in writing this book? And I want to acknowledge the person who helped me without whom this book would not exist. So a culture of offering credit and compensation, compensation, and just being upfront, I think Mm -hmm. would help mitigate some of the celebrity dynamics we see in publishing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, there is this idea of as a Christian, I mean, I do have different expectations of Christian authors and speakers and all of the things than I do mm-hmm. from someone who isn't of Christ, because that is what we've been taught. And that's much of what the Bible says, right? Yeah. That's interesting. When you recognize like somebody who had worked at Dave Ramsey's company had, I assume they had been using a ghostwriter. Like, how did that, how did that make you feel? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. It makes me feel icky and like you're lying Mm. because, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and the reason why it makes me feel like you're lying is because I know this person is now a best-selling author Mm -hmm. and side note, they, I I don't want to assume this. You, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but a large part of how they may have become a best-selling author is because they're underneath a very big name. And that company, a lot of times buys a lot of the copies of the books to resell. And then that puts them on the bestseller list. Yes. It's also (laughs) icky and feels lie to me. (laughs) Yes. You are, you are picking up on, uh, it's like a self-fulfilling cycle. Yeah. Where the reason that the book sells is because the person works at the ministry, the ministry buys bulk copies of the book. Like sometimes 10,000, you know, to distribute at their events, they get a really discounted rate. 
the book ends up on the best-selling list. But meanwhile, should we at least consider that so many of those sales are coming from the ministry itself? <laughs> right. And then that person is now considered an expert because they're on the best sellers list. Mm. So now they get a bigger platform to stand on, mm-hmm. but they're actually teaching stuff that maybe they weren't even the one who wrote about and <laughs> the cycle goes on. Yeah, I didn't some- expect we were going to go here, Caitlin. <laughs> No, I, this is, this is like what I think about all the time. And I have some strong thoughts about it. I, I, me too. I just can't write about it because I, I need a ghostwriter. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Going back to the idea that a book that's ghostwritten would be a bestseller. My understanding too, is that, you know, ghostwriters are often paid in like a work for hire agreement. And once that work is done, they don't, they don't get any more. Right. So when you think about royalties, if a book really performs well, well, they don't see any of that. They don't benefit from like speaking engagements that could come from a book being. So the person who hasn't written the book is reaping the benefits of the work of someone who is never named. And at the very least, I think a reading public should be more aware that this is how the sausage gets made, so to speak. (laughs) You know, cause, yes. cause I don't, I don't think that your average Christian book buyer and reader is aware of some of these industry practices. And I wonder if it would change how they value or read these books or look up to best-selling authors if they knew how the book was actually created. Well, and as someone who for the majority of my Christian life was an average Christian book reader and buyer. I had no idea. And when I say this to friends and other people that maybe are in my small group or just in my circle, Mm -hmm. their eyes become about as big as half dollars. And they're so confused as to what I'm even talking about. Mm -hmm. So I think what you just said is 100% correct. People are shocked. The normal Mm -hmm. person is shocked that maybe, you know, X, Y, and Z who has this much of a following actually did not write those works. Mm-hmm. Is it common? Tell me this with ghostwriting mm-hmm. and then I'm going to move on. Is it common or is it, I know it's best practice, but I don't know if this is what always happens that although they may not be the author, they are sitting down with the ghostwriter and typically most of the information is coming from the person. Yeah. I, I can't speak to like, I don't have a percentage in mind of like how, Statistic. you know, mm-hmm. in part because right. people are typically loath to kind of pull the curtain back and show you. I would give the benefit of the doubt, even for ghostwritten books, that there was a series of conversations or interviews where the ghostwriter just asked a lot of questions to garner information, ideas, stories. So the ideas, the teaching, I would assume is actually originating from the person whose name is on the cover. Um, I don't think the ghostwriter is like coming up with the ideas and then saying, Hey, would you say something like this? <laughs> Although I would be, actually be, this is a great question. I would be fascinated if that is more to common than we realize that. And then I think absolutely the ghostwriter has to be credited on the cover of the book. If they are coming yeah, up with ideas, you know, then we get into intellectual integrity. If your pastor mm-hmm were preaching and offering an idea or a concept that actually came from somebody else and didn't give credit, you would have a problem with that, I think. And yeah. these best-selling authors often are playing kind of a pastoral or spiritually spiritual teaching role in the lives of readers. Shouldn't we know if it's not actually their original teaching or ideas? I think that that's kind of a no-brainer. This episode is brought to you by The Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on The Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. 
I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. There's so much in the book that's really fantastic because you you address the issue head on, but you're also very hopeful and you're not just out airing everyone's dirty laundry. That's not mm-hmm. the goal of what you've written here. And I do appreciate that. And so something you write about early on is social power without proximity and the difference between fame versus celebrity. Flesh that out for us a bit, just so the listener kind of understands what that means. So I distinguish between fame and celebrity in a couple ways. Fame has always been with us, you know, in every time and place, there have been people whose accomplishments, family lineage, military conquest, you know, took their name far beyond their specific location. Like people knew Caesar's name. They had of course never met him, interacted with him. That's going to be with us forever. It's just, Mm -hmm. Sometimes people do things that other people hear about and their name spreads and there's a certain kind of acclaim with that. Celebrity is a much newer phenomenon in that it is inherently tied to the use of mass media, you know, starting with newspapers, radio, television. Today, of course, social media has added so much jet fuel to this because now all of us can, (laughs) all of us have the tools to try to be celebrities, right? (laughs) But celebrity is something that is cultivated with the use of these tools to amplify not just a message, but oftentimes a persona that it's almost more about the person and their image and brand and voice than it is about their accomplishments or even their message. So there's something Mm -hmm. that is manufactured about it. I think for the church, when we think about the role of celebrity in the church, this idea that celebrity is tricky and dangerous because it is a form of social power, the ability to influence other people without the proximity that we all need in order to stay grounded and rooted and humble as fallen human beings bearing the image of God. We all need people who know us and love us. We all need people who really know who we are behind closed doors far away from the spotlight and the platform. And what often happens is that as somebody's celebrity power rises and grows, there are fewer and fewer people in their inner circle who can really speak into their lives. And, you know, all of us face a temptation to misuse power, whatever power we have. And so that's why as our power grows, we need all the more people surrounding us, you know, having a lot of power without a lot of accountability is a very dangerous place for any of us to find ourselves. So if your star is rising, so to speak, if people are tuning in to hear what you have to say, following you, buying your books, any celebrity leader has to take really seriously kind of the cultivation of real accountability in their lives in order to keep that power in check. Oh my goodness. Right. And it seems like now, even with social media, like that inner circle, social media also infiltrates that, right? Because there's this uh, need, felt need or felt pressure to even share the inner mm. circle. And I'm not mm-hmm. sure it's healthy to really mm. share that, but yet not keep it secret either. Yeah. It's, I think what you're touching on is the uses and abuses of vulnerability. <laughs> like, And I know this sounds so cynical and I, I really do appreciate it when people that I respect and follow are honest about challenges and struggles in their lives. Like this is what's going on for our family. It's a difficult season. I'm struggling with health issues. Our church is going through, you know, I, I really appreciate those reminders that they struggle just like we all do and might be able to minister to people who are in a similarly difficult position, Mm -hmm. but I also really believe that there, I think for, for our health, you know, if we have any sort of measure of influence, maintaining some kind of boundary between the private and public self 
and just recognizing that not everything is up for others consumption, <laughs> you know, like mm-hmm. I, I think we intuit that there are certain moments in life that should stay off camera, off screen, you know, like I was with my family a few weeks ago and, you know, we shared a lot of meals together. We were camping together. My nephew is two and he's in this adorable stage. And I just ate every moment yes. up. And I posted at the end of the weekend, I posted a few photos of me and him together because I want everybody to see how cute he is. Um, But I wasn't wanting to put those family moments on the internet. You know, there was something about that time together that felt set apart and sacred and needed to be set apart, you know? So I'm not... Mm -hmm. I'm not interested in creating a list of like, here's what influencers should share and shouldn't say. I, I think that yes. that is really, I'm happy to leave that up to everyone's personal discernment. As long as there is a sense that there are parts of yourself and your life and your walk with God that don't need to be publicized and that are set apart. And that we, I think as Christians sometimes say or resist that temptation of feeling like we need to share. Mm. I think that's the thing is, oh, if I don't keep constantly sharing, I'm going to lose mm. this platform. Right. right. Um, Cause you know, you do want to see some of the vulnerable parts of people. If not, that is that created persona, but it doesn't have to be every single mm-hmm. little thing that you do in your life. You're putting on the internet, good or bad. Yeah. And I think, you know, both of us probably experience this realization that these social media platforms demand content, (laughs) you know, all the time. And you, you know, so your following starts growing and people are resonating. And then you feel like, oh, well, now I need to be thinking about things to post. And it never ends. And it's, and that is (laughs) such a place of exhaustion and burnout and feeding a monster. And having to really step Mm -hmm. back and ask, why am I doing this? Like, what is, what is my Mm -hmm. primary hope? You know, even the goal of growing your following. Well, that's not really the point. I think for most of us, it's like, I want to help people with a message. I want to illuminate something for them. I want to come alongside of them. And if it's 300 people or 300,000, like at the end of the day, keeping the main thing, the main thing, instead of fixating on the numbers game. And I think that's a temptation for all of us. I think that that, that is a pull for all of us to really fixate on the numbers. I agree. Well, and that's the thing too, you, in the book, you lay out three different temptations for people in this celebrity place and not just celebrities, somebody who, like you said, your star is rising. And one of those is the abuse of power. What are some of the ways we see this playing out in the church? And then how are church members, me, mm. most people listening, how are we kind of complicit mm-hmm. in that? The chapter on abuses of power was definitely the hardest to write because it required digging into stories of, you know, fallen Christian leaders. And I was, I was familiar with those stories as a journalist and uh, an editor and, I'd heard and read mm-hmm. elements of those stories, but really digging into them and just recognizing that um, in so many of these stories, not only did the leader himself or herself start to really kind of believe their own hype <laughs> and mm-hmm. start to really believe that they could kind of do and say anything and no one was going to challenge them because everybody adored them or they were so gifted or talented right. or look how our church is growing. People are coming to hear them speak and preach, but also the people around them who were expressly responsible for offering accountability were very reticent to do so because either they were afraid of the leader, like Mm -hmm. this guy is not a very nice person and I don't want to receive the wrath of his verbal lashing out. But also they benefited from their proximity to the celebrity themselves, you know, and it's really hard when a church or ministry is growing and people are coming and flocking to a church or ministry. It's really easy to think, well, this is working, (laughs) so we should just keep going down this path. But I think part of what I'm trying to get at in this book is that how we do things is just as important and as what we accomplish. So Growing a church 
with integrity and humility matters. You know, who we put up on stage matters. I think too, Mm -hmm. a lot of times in these stories where there's been abuses of power, people are reticent to bring someone off a pedestal because that person has meant so much to them, like as a hero of the faith Mm -hmm. or, you know, you brought me to Christ, you changed my life. You have healed some things in for my family or a whole host of things. It's hard to also acknowledge that someone you really admire and look up to can also be capable of really horrible things. There's such a cognitive dissonance Mm -hmm. there. And in some of these stories where there's like a fallen pastor, even years later, people are still sorting through that cognitive dissonance and trying to recover and hold on to their faith when so much of their faith previously was wrapped up in this specific person, which is why I think it's just really dangerous to put on anyone on a pedestal because if they fall, that can so often affect our understanding of faith. There's a spiritual cost to that. Well, and I think what we hear often too, I mean, I know you've quoted a church called Tove with the Bill Hybels thing in your Mm -hmm. book, um, which I've spoken to uh, Scott and Laura as Mm. well. So that's just an example that I'm thinking Mm -hmm. about right now, having Mary DeMuth on my show, Mm -hmm. who also spoke about Ravi and that whole Mm -hmm. situation. I think there is this start to it in a sense of, oh, well, they're sinners like we're Mm. sinners early on. I'm talking like early on when you see some of these Mm -hmm. signs of whoa, that person just exploded. Because I mean, let's be honest, if you were to sit in my house with my three kids, you'd be like, she's talking about Jesus all the time. And yet she's like, totally. They, some people would be like, you're verbally abusing your kids. Okay. Whoa, 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 (laughs) hold the show. You know? So I think sometimes it starts there and it's Mm -hmm. like, when, when does it get to that point where it's like, no, 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 this is not okay. This, we we've passed that. You cannot keep doing that. And I'm not so much asking you for that right. answer as much as like, do you see mm. that? Do you hear that? Because the reality is, I mean, at Christianity today, mm-hmm. like there's been a huge thing come out with that. So <laughs> yeah. Talk about that. Yes. Yes, there has. Um, yeah, I, I do think that, I mean, a couple things, like I respect the impulse to recognize that wonderful leaders are sinful, like everybody that, you know, they have their temptations, their struggles. Like I understand and respect to a point starting from a place of giving the benefit of the doubt, you know, or like, well, they're under a lot of pressure, you know, and if any of us were under that pressure, yeah, we might explode too, or we might not always treat people the way they deserve to be treated. The problem is that over time you start to reinforce for the leader that they can kind of do anything. Mm -hmm. And if you are a leader who is predisposed to some level of narcissism Mm -hmm. and outburst in your own way, secrecy, you know, hiding, hiding things from other people, needing everybody to be on board with your vision. Just some of those kind of early indicators that by the way, happen to when used rightly make good leaders, right? They get a lot of stuff done. They can cast a vision and get people excited about it. But over time, they start to realize like, no one is going to stand up to me. And that's where you really get into abuses of power that really hurt people. Absolutely. And you know, hindsight is 2020. And I'm sure in these stories with Ravi, with Bill Hybels, even, you know, you alluded to the story with Christianity today, you can look back and say like, oh yeah, that should have been, that should have been a line in the sand. That should have been the point where we said, you can't do this, or there will be consequences. Like you will have some of your power taken away. You will be, or disciplinary action or something. But as is so often the case, like you don't, you don't connect the dots until it's too late. And also when you're working Mm -hmm. for a ministry where there, you have a lot of responsibility and it's busy and it's like, go, go, go. I think you start to justify some of it. Like, yeah. And just kind of keep your head down. And I don't want to, I don't want to ruffle feathers. I don't want to create controversy. I don't want to lose my job because this person obviously (laughs) doesn't respond well to being told they're not right or they can't do something. And if I stand up, am I going to be let go? And I don't want to be let go because I really believe in the ministry and I like my colleagues and 
so it's it is it's it is so very complicated. complicated. It's really complicated to be in any institution, but especially in an institution that kind of centers itself on a big, potentially narcissistic, charismatic leader. Yes. And it's so hard because it's easy to expect that in corporate America. Mm. Yet as Christians, where I'm like, what the bad word, <laughs> right? Like what the yes, bad word. Indeed. Um, what the bad word. Indeed. And <laughs> I have thought word. that many yeah, times. Oh, I may have said <laughs> yes. it out loud. Great. <laughs> we, we tend to extend more grace to these people because I'm like, but wait just mm. a minute. What you're saying is it, it, it's too different sides of the same mm-hmm. coin, right? Like you can't say, I'm going to extend grace to this mm-hmm. person, but then be like, oh, they get to just be this horrible leader who is like abusive to everyone. But I'm like, do people just not see that? Yeah. I, I think fortunately you're, you're picking up on something like cheap grace, you know, which is yes the true meaning of it's, it's an a, excuse. Yeah, it's an excuse or it's a way to minimize because you know, grace is such a foundational aspect of Christian faith and we need to extend grace to each other. And also there are certain, yeah, there are certain requirements for leaders, you know, and Mm -hmm. it is actually not gracious to allow someone to keep acting poorly and in a non-Christ-like manner that Mm -hmm. is bad for their own souls, but also could have such a harmful effect on other people. It's actually not gracious to just let them do whatever, you know, like that's right. It's, if yeah. you're raising a child and you, you want to parent in a gracious way, you of course know that that doesn't mean that your child gets to do whatever they want, whenever they want. That's like, right. They don't ever experience discipline. Right. And I'm not saying it's fun. No, none of us really enjoys no. being held accountable or having someone speak a hard truth into our lives. But then I look back on the times when that's happened, you know, among friends and I'm like, that was really important that they were able to say that. And then at the end of the day, that was actually an expression of love rather than punishment or shame, you know, like it was actually the loving thing to speak a hard truth into my life than to just let it go. That's right. Yeah. I mean, that accountability is so important. And then, you know, actually not just saying I'm going to be accountable to a quote unquote elder board, Mm -hmm. but actually allowing them to hold you accountable are also two very different things. And you write about that Mm -hmm. a little bit as well, but I want to shift back somewhat to the publishing world. I know as someone who is not in the world, but kind of in the world and constantly talking to people in the world, how hard Mm -hmm. it is to publish a book because you need this platform of 50,000 plus people. But do you see a better way forward mm. where, you know, publishers can have profit ability mm-hmm. because you have to do that as a mm-hmm. business yet don't require authors to have this email list. That's, I mean, mm-hmm. just, mm-hmm. You, you know, you know, yeah. And I say this, you know, there is an inherent tension in this book in that I received a contract to write a book in which I critique the book publishing industry. I am now, I so appreciate that. <laughs> like, I know it's easy, you know, it's like, oh, well, that's easy for her to say she got to write a book, you know? So I recognize that there is a tension and an irony at play. I would say thinking more in terms of industry insiders, I think it really has to come from people within the industry to change the spirit of the industry, meaning taking creative risks for projects that you really believe in. You think are, you know, the message is really important. The writing is really good. The ideas and topics are really original and timely. This is going to serve a lot of people there. The social media platform isn't big, but I think we, we often, all of us, to some extent, get into ruts where we just keep doing the thing that we know works. <laughs> you know, and I know that pressure too, because as an acquisitions editor, I look at proposals all the time and try to assess yeah. their value. And some of that is looking at platform and followers, but I think just balancing that out with questions of writerly skill, even something like credibility, 
<laughs> um, just because you have a lot of followers doesn't mean you've established credibility to write or speak on a specific topic. And I think that can, mm. you know, credibility can look different for different people in different topics. It's not like everybody needs to get a PhD before they write on a topic, but just bringing more factors into the decision-making process, because that sets the tone for other authors to say, um, maybe I can write a book or publish a book with a traditional publisher, because I see the kind of books that they're, this publisher is publishing, and they seem to be willing to take risks on new authors, on authors with smaller platforms and just making space in a publishing program for those kind of creative risks. Because if you only work with the big names, what ends up happening is that <laughs> the big names internally require a large commitment of time and resources and energy. And then there's like nothing left over for other people. I, but I do, I do think it, I do think it probably has to start with industry insiders to help hmm. challenge and change the platform culture. Hmm. I appreciate that. Cause actually a PR firm, uh, I, I put on Instagram, I said, I'm interviewing Caitlin. What are some questions you'd have me mm -hmm. ask her? What, what would you like to know? And one of the PR firms question was, you know, like, how mm. do we promote our books without, and, and I appreciated right. that this firm actually submitted a question to mm -hmm. me because I actually have a fairly good relationship with them and I'm grateful. They don't seem to be the ones that are just constantly trying to put out the biggest people mm -hmm. and all of that, but at the same time have a lot of pretty high profile mm -hmm. clients and had just said, you know, how do we do this without being icky? Yeah. <laughs> without, you know, like without being exactly what we've already talked about. And I know that's hard, but here is something too. Aren't we kind of creating this world where you've got and I'm not talking about the publisher. I'm just talking about social mm. media and Christians in general. God's given you a message. Mm. You should write about that message. Mm -hmm. Like, aren't we watering down the publishing mm. world a little bit? Because it seems like everybody wants to write. Yes. <laughs> yes. And again, this is a very privileged thing to say, but I don't think everybody should write a book. <laughs> Girl, me neither. Not everybody me? who wants to write a book should in fact write the book because I think that's just going back to what we talked about previously, which is, you know, in relation to ghostwriting, which is you might have a really important message or teaching, but there are so many other forums for communicating that writing a book is a very specific skill. It's hard. And mm -hmm. as an editor, I want to kind of preserve the integrity of that calling while honoring the fact that yes, plenty of people have important messages that could edify the church. That just doesn't mean you have to write a book. You don't have, no one has to write a book. And I tend That's to right. think that you shouldn't write a book unless you can't not. And whether or not you find a publisher is a different question, but mm. having written two books in both experiences, I, got to a point in the man writing the manuscript where I was like, why would anyone ever do this? This is terrible. <laughs> this is a level of concentration and quiet time and saying no to fun things on the weekends. My whole margin is being devoted to this. Why would I ever do this? Why did I say yes to doing this again? <laughs> like you really need, you need to really, really know that God has put I don't want to say that God has put this in your heart. That's, that's so cheesy and churchy <laughs> um, that God has really called you to this. And like you said, you can't not write it. And I'll never forget a conversation I have with Lisa Whittle. And we were just talking about stuff. She's like, do you, you know, let's talk about mm -hmm. the book. And my response to her caused her to say, you don't need mm -hmm. to write a book because you, you aren't at the point where you, you need to know that, you know, that, mm -hmm. you know, that you should mm -hmm. write a book. And I was like, thank you. And she was very clear to be like, that doesn't mean that's never, ever, ever in your whole life right, right now. I can just tell. Mm -hmm. And she said a lot of what you just now mm -hmm. said, it is a ton of work. Don't buy into the lie that there's a lot of return. There's not. <laughs> so there's that. Yeah. And I think actually what you're highlighting <laughs> is how important it is for other people. Like it's one thing to feel like God is calling you to something, but like if everybody else in your life is saying no. That's really important to pay attention to, you know, like having some kind of confirmation 
that like, yes, this is, I can see this. You'd be really good at this. I think there'd be interest. If, if there are a lot of closed doors, maybe God is calling you to write a book someday, but not now, you know? So That's I right. just getting that <laughs> honest, but loving feedback from other people is I think an important part mm-hmm. of discernment. I appreciate that. And, and on the flip side of that, Lisa had also said, just because you have people in your life telling you <laughs> that you should mm. write a book doesn't also mm. doesn't mean that maybe right mm-hmm. now is the time because I had said to her, but I mean, this person and this person, and she's like, but remember, that's like a total of, you know, six or seven mm-hmm. people. It's not as many. And, and she, again, wasn't, um, wasn't going to the point of discouraging me right. from doing that as much as being that voice that you just mm-hmm. talked about look at all sides and know what you're getting yourself mm-hmm. into because it's not like a walk in the park where you just sit down and write a book. No, <laughs> it's work. Yes. I mean, I know that there's a vision of people sitting down and having like a muse or the Holy spirit just descend upon them and give them the words. I'm like, that has never happened for me in my life. Every time I write, it feels like pulling teeth and then it feels great when you're done, <laughs> but like the actual right, doing right. it is not fun. <laughs> That's right. I love it. Yeah. And I mean, some people love it, but anyways, okay. I want to end with this. You at the end of the book are so you, you write so beautifully about ordinary faithfulness. And I want to say, um, well, this is what you write. If I could point to a defining factor that has made Christian faith alluring, plausible, and real to me, it is this other Christians. I mean, ordinary, flawed messy fellow humans working out what it means to love God and neighbor day in and day out without fanfare or praise. And I literally was like, amen, as I was reading that. And so how would you encourage those listening who maybe they've been negatively impacted Mm -hmm. by celebrity Christians, um, or maybe they're just caught up a little bit in the fanfare Mm -hmm. and they're, they've kind of lost that first love of Mm. Christ. Maybe they haven't seen the celebrity Christian thing Mm. at all. And they're just struggling. How would you tell them to press into that ordinary faithfulness? Yeah, I would encourage listeners to really just start noticing the people in their life, whether at church and their family, neighbors, colleagues, these people are almost certainly not on social media. They don't have big platforms. No, they're not a household name. (laughs) They're maybe known by really known by like a handful of people in the world. Mm -hmm. But when I think about the people who most strongly and brilliantly model Christ to me, give me a vision of what it means to follow Christ. I'm not thinking about writers, pastors, ministry leaders, influencers. It's not to say that they don't have a place or that their words aren't impactful, but there's something about seeing someone like in the flesh and observing how they move through life. That is such a powerful teaching tool. Part of why God calls us to be part of a community of faith is that we need to model that for each other. We obviously, we depend on each other in so many ways, but mm-hmm. we, we need to see glimpses of the road of sanctification <laughs> as God mm-hmm. is forming us into his likeness, okay. how people are working that out day in and day out, oftentimes through incredible trial and struggle. Yep. And just what a gifted is to be able to walk alongside someone as they're going through something terrible and seeing how God is refining them, refining their spirit and character through that. That's what Mm -hmm. I think about when I think about what it means to be a Christian. I think about the people I know and love who model that so well for me. And I see I think we need tangible reminders. You know, I think we need something as, as embodied beings who bear the image of God. We need, we need to see it, you know, and not just Mm -hmm. consume it on a screen or in a podcast, but see it. And so, yeah, I would just encourage listeners to start noticing, you know, and, Mm -hmm. and ask who am I investing in, in my attention economy? Am I, and I am, I'm definitely guilty of this. Am I spending more time 
with quote unquote people on Instagram than I am in my church or neighborhood. That's, mm-hmm. oh, oh man, as even as I said that, I was like, shoot, that's really convicting like for myself. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, me too, but it's never too late to pay attention, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Caitlin, like it's never too late to start that or restart mm-hmm. that or sit down and take a inventory of your life mm-hmm. and say, who are those people that come to mind that embodied Christ-like character to me? What's their name? Why did I see mm-hmm. it? What were they doing? And then, like you said, who, how am I doing that in the lives of mm. others? And it does shift your perspective, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your work, for your voice. If people want to connect with you, um, I'm assuming Twitter is probably the best place to do <laughs> that. But... <laughs> yes. Again, the irony and like, Ah, social media, I know, but also so. follow me. Well, just to close out, thank you so much for a thoughtful conversation, Amber, and for taking the time to engage the ideas in the book. And um, yeah, if listeners want to learn more, they can go to caitlinbeatty.com and learn more about Celebrities for Jesus and some of my other writing there as well. Don't forget to hit that share button in the app where you are currently listening. Also, you'll find Celebrities for Jesus linked in the show notes. Purchasing from that link gives me a small commission at no cost to you. Next week, I am joined by psychologist, author, and international speaker, Dr. Diane Langberg. Dr. Langberg is globally recognized for her 50 years of clinical work with trauma victims, and she has trained caregivers and clergy worldwide in responding to trauma and abuse of power. It is an episode you won't want to miss. So make sure you are following Grace Enough Podcast in your favorite listening app so that when the new episode drops next Tuesday, you will be immediately notified. Thank you for listening to the Grace Enough Podcast. Tune in next time. This episode was brought to you in part by Just These Guys, you know? A pastor and a psychologist team up to break down scripture and psychology, empowering you to transform by the renewing of your mind. Listen today at justtheseguys.podbean.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Just These Guys, you know?